Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Many asylum seekers in Chicago are struggling to meet their most basic needs, like having a roof over their heads, warm clothes to wear, and food to eat. And that can lead them to put off, ignore, or not even recognize another need, their mental health. WBEZ interviewed more than 30 people to understand what's at stake for new arrivals living in the city's shelters if the emotional toll of migration isn't addressed, and how the frayed mental health system in Illinois makes it more difficult to access care. We sat down with WBEZ public health and county government reporter Kristen Schorsch to explain this reporting. She was joined in conversation by two of her sources, Veronica Armenta Sanchez, a licensed clinical social worker who has led healing circles for migrants living in shelters on the southwest side, and Laura Papa, who's director of behavioral health education at Northwestern Family Medicine, also a licensed psychologist at Erie Family Health. I started off by asking Kristen what inspired her reporting and what she found out about the state of mental health services for the city's asylum seekers. Here's Kristen. I've spent the last year doing a lot of mental health reporting, so I knew just in general how hard it is for people um, who are low income, have Medicaid, um, speak English in this country, right, to find mental health services. There's just such a shortage of providers. And so as we've been getting more buses and more migrants have been arriving, it just made me think they are going through some really harrowing journeys. They've experienced so much back in their home countries, on their way here, when they get here, and they're Mm -hmm. sleeping in police stations or in shelters. It just made me think, not assuming they want to talk to somebody, but if they do, where do they go? How do they even know help exists? So I just started um, asking, you know, calling around to a lot of people, social workers, therapists, um, advocacy groups, volunteers, boots on the ground, To first understand what was happening, what they were seeing, what they were hearing and connecting people to services Mm -hmm. and then to find people to tell the story through. Yeah. What were some of the things that you had to consider when deciding to tell the stories of of these migrants? Well, I mean, the first thing is, you know, naturally reporters were so used to just going up to people and asking them questions. Right. Um, And this story to me was so delicate and so sensitive and. I and a lot of other people here have done trauma-informed reporting training. So I was not going to go up to somebody at a police station and say, hey, can I ask you about your trauma? Like that to me would be so re-traumatizing. And so it took a lot of time to find people to tell the story through because I was really trying to go through the helpers to find someone who'd be comfortable sharing that story. You ultimately chose to profile only one of the people that you spoke with, and that's a man whose name is Jorge Rubiano. So mm-hmm. why Jorge? You know, Jorge was just, um, he was very accessible and open about his story. Um, I met him through um, the Brighton Park Neighborhood Council. I talked with his case manager. I talked with him. He is staying at a shelter. He's been there since July. Um, he came from Colombia. He made the journey. He said that the government was threatening his life back home, so he made the decision to leave his wife behind, his mom, other family. Um, And he just had this very kind of gripping story. He was kidnapped for about a month on his way here. Um, Once he arrived, you know, as I said, he's been staying at the shelter. He's been looking for steady work. Um, 
He, though, has decided really to keep a lot of his stories to himself. He has not really gone seeking mental health help, right? But um, he keeps it kind of close to the vest. But he was very open about his experiences and how he is coping in his own way. What else did he tell you? He's learning English. Um, he's reading The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and Call of the Wild. Um, he, you know, when I asked him, you know, maybe what are you, what are you dreaming about? What are your days like? Um, he thinks back to like some very haunting experience he's had. Uh, he's really just, he's, he's hoping to find an apartment soon. Yeah. You know, he sees hope um, while also balancing a lot of these bad things that have happened to him. He's looking forward. And, and I see uh, his story seems to put a little bit of a smile on your face, Veronica. What comes to mind when you hear Jorge's story? I just remember the families sharing their own story and just the healing power when they're sharing how they're adapting and assimilating to this culture. They want to learn. They want to learn the language. They're curious about learning the policies and how to um, just contribute. contribute. They're eager to work. I saw it in their faces and just their energy every uh -huh. time we did the healing circles. They're not here for handouts. They really want to be contributing citizens to this country and just starting from the basics, right? Just learning the language. How common is it for, for migrants to have to split up from their family? That was actually one of the topics that I respectfully asked them at the beginning if it was okay for them to share the story. I think every time you lead a, a, a healing circle, you have to ask permission. And that was actually one of the first topics, right? And just how hard it was to leave home and leave their families behind. Uh, that trauma of not knowing where they were coming to and not knowing what they were leaving behind. Uh, they didn't know whether their families were going to be okay. Uh, most of the men left a lot of their wives and, and children behind. And there was entire families that actually moved together, which was a very hard and traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. Enduring and putting the kids through through that journey, right, to jungles and yeah. crossing different borders. Laura, as we talk about trauma, give us some of the common symptoms or responses that you've seen uh, in refugee populations to that trauma. Sure. Yeah. So you're going to see folks that are struggling to sleep, that have very almost exaggerated responses to things that other people wouldn't have the same responses to, difficulty with memory. Because really what we're dealing with when it comes to trauma or a, a PTSD diagnosis, a post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis, uh, we're, we're looking at folks that uh, whose prefrontal cortex is, has been very um, affected and impacted. And so the prefrontal cortex deals with um, planning and uh, uh, organization and many aspects of personality, for example. The amygdala is also uh, affected, which deals with regulating emotion, the fight or flight response. So we're seeing people that are really wow. struggling uh, in many, many areas. Among the city's migrant population, there are a lot of needs to be met, right? And some we know are more pressing than others. What effect does all of that have on a person's mental health? Mm. Even just trying to compartmentalize yeah. all of that. Well, 
I, I remember when uh, I met Kristen, we talked about Maslow hierarchy of needs. And so this is just a theory that in order to be a happy, successful being, you need to have very basic needs met. And so these folks are, are not having their basic needs met. Housing, food, you know, proper shelter, yeah. education. Um, and so it's affecting mood, their ability to cope their ability to go by day by day, um, yeah. you know. And uh, the, the other piece I, I want to add is that when uh, when people are born, um, we, we all establish a life narrative. And when that life narrative changes, that is a very traumatic experience. And no one wakes up one day and, and wants this to be their life narrative because it's extremely difficult. And so... That by itself, that change in narrative is extremely painful yeah. and traumatic. To that end, Veronica, I mean, being dependent on strangers for everything, right? You're looking at strangers for what food you get to eat, what clothes you and your children uh, get to wear. That is a definite psychological strain, yes. if I say, can say so myself. Did you hear some of those frustrations from migrants, especially ones waiting for work permits in the meantime? And shelter. Uh, a lot of people were very thankful for all that was being provided for them. Um, of course, it's, there is a difference of what they're used to, right, especially when it comes to food. Um, and I know a lot of communities had the, the perfect intent to provide a, a hot meal. Uh, and there was times where they were provided food, but often not eat it because they're not used to eating beans they're more lean to eating rice so even that sense of maybe learning something and adapting to a new culture and being being very thankful to to be provided a hot meal but uh yes i they were very there was a, a sense of gratitude every time you offer them uh, something yeah. and very resilient responses when we were uh, when I was uh, leading the the circles um, they want to You're preserve talking about healing circles yes yeah. we, they wanted to preserve their their identity their identity though how did your healing circles work so I was actually offered uh, and an, you know the open space by a Southwest collective um, agency a nonprofit in the south side and I was asked to come as a mental health provider and to lead um, some type of community uh, resource, right? And so I came with the idea of he uh, healing circles based on my experience as a provider mm -hmm. uh, leading uh, healing circles with substance abuse uh, population and as a medical social worker in the medical field for, for a while. So uh, leading circles with leading circles, you have to have uh, three uh, principles of intent, right? Your, your intentions have to be clear mm -hmm. and express to the audience uh, that you're inviting into it, being re very respectful of what you want them to share yeah. and also what you want to get out of it uh, for personal gains, right? Yeah. Because as a provider, you give so much when you're le leading a circle, yeah. but more than anything, their honor the honor to their stories, their integrity. Yeah. They're sharing something that they endure that could be very traumatic and, and it could have an aftermath for years to come, not only for them, but for yeah. their kids. And in the meantime, Kristen, we have talked on this program before about the shortage 
of mental health uh, professionals in Illinois. What are the wait times now to see a provider? It depends. It depends where you go. It depends where you live. It depends if you have insurance. It depends if you know how to navigate the healthcare system. We all know it's it can be so confusing and overwhelming. Yeah. So um, there are barriers, as we know, right? To- and, and think of also barriers for migrants in the situation is, is language mm-hmm. and is finding someone who understands their culture and the world they come from, right? I feel like I, I met a lot of um, helpers, Veronica, Dr. Papa, and others who have their own um, backstory about this as well and kind of what brings them to their work. But I mean, in terms of shortage of mental health providers at clinics in the Chicago area, um, I've heard ranges of one month to seven months. There yeah. was just a recent um, study that came out that looked at um, a network of clinics that the city contracts with, and that was that was the wait. And that wasn't all the clinics, but that was um, a survey that was done. So one to seven months, that's a long time. A and big range. And depending on what kind of help that you need or you want, you know, that's obviously going to be different. Um, yeah. But clearly there there's long been a shortage. People talk about that very openly in the city. And... You know, I found ways that people are trying to help fill that gap, right? Yeah. Through healing circles, through support groups, through things that volunteers are just popping up, um, really trying to prevent and and um, help with any sort of isolation, community building, so that, you know, there's some sort of safety net for the migrants. Right. Well, leave us with this, Laura. I mean, proven strategies for addressing trauma in refugees mm-hmm. and asylum seekers and, and perhaps ways that we can better support the mental health mm-hmm. of migrants. Yeah. So it's important to remember that not everyone that experiences a traumatic event will actually develop PTSD. It's only actually about 30 percent, which is still a high number, but it's about 30 percent. So sure, uh, going through trauma-focused treatment can be helpful, but sometimes what's even more helpful is providing the support, the healing circles, the community building, the, you know, translating or interpreting whenever you can, those are the things that remove some of these barriers that can help the person going back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs go a little up, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, But of course, there are validated treatments for the actual disorder if that disorder does develop. Yeah. We'll leave it there for now. That's Laura Papa, who's Director of Behavioral Health Education at Northwestern Family Medicine. Veronica Armenta Sanchez, a licensed clinical social worker, and WBEZ public health and county government reporter Kristen Shores. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We've been talking about the barriers migrants face when trying to access a therapist or social worker in Illinois, a state that has one of the greatest shortages of mental health care workers in the country. But in city-run shelters, volunteers are trying to fill that gap. We spoke with the creators of support groups, or charlas, for migrants in city-run shelters to have a safe space to talk and to build community. Amy Hidalgo is an assistant professor at the University of Chicago's Crown Family School of Social Work, Policy, and Practice. And Rebecca Fortpaz is a clinical psychologist at Lurie Children's Hospital. They're both leaders in the Coalition for Immigrant Mental Health. I started off by asking them to define charlas and the need. Here's Rebecca. So the um, initiative that we started is called Reimagining Mental Health Supports for Migrants, and it is really a public health initiative and a collaborative effort between the Coalition for Immigrant Mental Health, Mm -hmm. Lurie Children's Center for Childhood Resilience, and the UC Crown School. And what it is is really um, a mental health, it's a a rapid response to what we're seeing in an already overtaxed mental health system. 
Um, but we're trying to build the capacity of frontline mental health providers to implement universal mental health promotion and crisis prevention strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, and to lead small educational groups um, for new migrants um, that focus on emotional wellness. And we're really trying to normalize the stress and the adjustment that comes inherent in the migration um, process, um, realizing that many migrants don't need or even want a mental health referral to formal services. Yeah. So how many people are participating? And, And what's the age range? Sure. So we've trained over 260 frontline providers, and all of them are um, working either in shelters or have been out in the police districts or community-based organizations that serve the shelters. I see. And each charla can um, host, uh, we've seen charlas as small as three people, but we've also seen groups of 45 people show up. They're meant to be run multiple times a week and um, really to provide ongoing um, information that destigmatizes yeah. the idea that it is normal to have a stress reaction in traumatic circumstances and that there are supports available. Take us back, Amy. What was it like in city shelters before Charla's? Right. So when I think about arrivals that were coming in, many of them new to the city, new to their circumstances, there weren't a lot of opportunities for people to come together. If they were in congregate care settings in which there was just a big room with different cots, that's what their rooms look like. Or maybe they were in a shelter that was hotel-based, mm-hmm. so they would have meals in a congregate area, and then they would go back to their rooms. There's very little opportunities for them to connect with one another, even though they may be in a shelter that houses as many as 1,200 people. And so these charlas are intentional opportunities to bring people together, to remind them that there is the humanity of this work, of bringing people together, celebrating joy, having moments of humor and levity, but also at the same time giving them information on how to be successful here in the United States. How do we get you information that's going to help you adjust to a new country and to really thrive here? So take us to a charla, right? How does the group usually function and how does it begin? Sure. So a charla is usually about an hour in length, although we have trained folks to deliver components of it in smaller intervals of time. But each charla usually includes a community building activity to help folks build a sense of solidarity and community. We um, then have a discussion topic and that uh, we provide a facilitator guide as well as handouts with information on each topic. Uh, We engage uh, migrants in a relaxation practice there and then in the group. We have a quick reminder about how to access additional supports if needed, and then we end with an activity that really is meant to generate hope. Um, Our discussion topics are all centered around how to be successful in the U.S., so we do not call this a mental health workshop. We talk about how to be successful in the U.S. Why'd you make that choice? Well, we're really focusing on destigmatization, and we know that many migrants come with very stigmatized beliefs about mental health help seeking, and we really want to make sure that people know that this doesn't mean that you're crazy. It's actually a normal human reaction in traumatic circumstances to feel the way that you're feeling. Yeah, you're allowing, essentially, these participants to vent. Absolutely. Give us some of the common things that get brought up. Well, we um, will have folks who want to share some of their traumatic histories. However, we do discourage doing that in group settings because we don't want to re-trigger the audience. We don't want to get other people dysregulated 
um, in a group setting. So we want to make sure that these themas are not just a, a venting support group. Um, so we do structure them around themes that will be universally helpful. So we really start off with the sequence um, with a, a topic of discussion on taking care of one another during stressful times. And that Charla really focuses on creating a sense of community and a sense of group accountability that we need to watch out for one another. If you see something, you say something. Then we move into how stress can affect you in getting and keeping a job because we know in terms of primacy of getting basic needs met, most are focused on how they're going to put bread on the table. And we want to make sure that we're um, providing them with information that, with, that resonates with what's top of mind for them. So we talk about work and how stress affects you at work. Then we move into parenting. Um, so we talk about child protection, protection laws in the United States. Mm -hmm. We talk about cultural differences in parenting. And we talk about um, how parents can support children who've been affected by trauma, how schools can affect children affected by trauma, and how parents um, can access supports at the schools. Amy, the idea behind this uh, support group or these support groups, it's, it's to try to prevent the most extreme outcomes uh, from happening uh, and to also help these migrants feel less isolated. Well, we right? know about the effects of trauma and stress yeah. along this migration journey is that it shatters the sense of connection. It makes people question that they have an ability to make decisions in their lives, yeah. to be able to form a life that they want for themselves. Yeah. And so well, they're, and they're coming up against a lot of things, right? Absolutely. They're they're at an in, in increased risk of suicide. They are. Uh, they're they're dealing with all of the things that we've discussed, inc including at the shelters, overcrowding. We've seen that situation turn deadly Absolutely. in some cases. We worry a lot about how just the compounding effects of experiences in home country, the experiences in transit, and then coming to the United States and learning you don't have employment authorization. You don't have a clear pathway to citizenship. Your housing is temporary, yeah. and you're going to have to find a job and find a way to secure some type of housing and providing for people you left behind, just so many stressors. So is the staff at, at these shelters prepared to, to handle these types of mental health situations? Well, this is why the initiative happened. You know, when Rebecca and I first started, the idea was, the ask to us from city and state leaders was, can you build a mental health workforce to provide therapy? And we visited the shelters and we realized very quickly, staffing these shelters with a singular mental health provider was not going to reduce suicidality, wasn't going to reduce the adjustment distress we were seeing in hundreds, if not thousands of people at once. And so this public health approach is let's train non-clinical frontline staff who are Spanish speaking mm -hmm. to be the first line of support. These are the individuals that are encountering them in the cafeterias, they are case managers, mm -hmm. they're residential aides, and they can be the first to validate those trauma and stress responses. They can build those opportunities for connection through these charlas, and in doing so, we're taking care of the entire community. How do you train them, Rebecca? Yes. Is, it, is it culturally specific? Yes, so our trainings are done all in Spanish, and we um, there's a six-hour training broken into two parts. The first part, we focus on universal strategies of trauma-informed care, psychological first aid, and crisis prevention, so that people in their one-on-one -on -one daily interactions with migrants have some tools in their tool belt. That's followed by a training on how to run small groups, or these charlas, to really promote emotional wellness. 
And following our trainings, we offer ongoing um, reflective consultation support to make sure that people are feeling supported in the implementation of these new strategies, as well as receiving crucial emotional support themselves, because our frontline workers are often immigrants themselves, have similar lived experiences, and are feeling very triggered by what they're hearing on a daily basis, all the traumatic histories that residents are sharing with them leads to compassion fatigue, burnout, and staff turnover if they aren't getting the structural and emotional supports that they need. How will these charlas play a role in this time? We're at the holidays. Absolutely. I think that the holidays can bring up a lot of meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, we think about a lot of grief and loss that comes with the migration journey, family they left behind, loss on the journey, what they've witnessed, seeing loss of life in coming to the United States. They're reminders of when to be together. And so the hope is that these charlas will be opportunities for connection, to celebrate the good in coming to the United States, celebrate the good of being with one another, and the shared hope that 2024 may be a better year for everyone. And did I hear this right, Rebecca, that other cities have contacted you to bring charlas to their shelters? Yes, actually, we've started to hear requests from other cities uh, to train them on our model so that they can replicate what we're doing in Chicago. And we've had a, a virtual meeting with some cities who are interested to kind of provide some guidance, such as the importance of having um, close collaboration with city and state partners to support a coordinated mental health response to ensure that city and state leaders are fully aware of how overtaxed the mental health care system is of the mental health pandemic itself, and to really justify the focus on prevention yeah. and and mental health promotion as opposed to finding an individual therapist for every distressed individual. That's right. Well, a lot of people listening to us, so tell us how they can get involved with these charlas, Amy. So we are very fortunate here in Chicago, here in the state of Illinois, that we have a strong partnership with IDHS, this, the mayor's office, the Department of Family Support Services, as well as community organizations. We've come together and really wanted to prioritize the frontline staff who are currently in the 27 active shelters. We are also beta testing an opportunity, a learning opportunity that will be housed at Lurie Children's Hospital that will have portions of our training available in Spanish and English in an online version. Mm-hmm. So any community organization that is encountering migrant arrivals, they will have those universal strategies. Sounds for very accessible. Health. Absolutely. We want to share this with other states, too, who are also looking for the work. As we think about advocating for mental health and supporting the mental health of arrivals, it doesn't just come in the form of our charlas. We still need to advocate for people to donate resources to get the winter gear to these new arrivals. We need to make sure that we have welcoming spaces so that these newcomers hear messages of welcome and that they belong here. We need a ton of advocacy for more dollars to do this work at the state level, at the federal level, and advocacy for employment authorization. Mental health is not going to exist if we don't meet those basic resources of getting people the opportunity to find a job and stable housing and access to health care. Amy Hedlato is an assistant professor at the University of Chicago's Crown Family School of Social Work Policy and Practice. And Rebecca Ford Paz is a social worker at Lurie Children's Hospital. They're both leaders of the Coalition for Immigrant Mental Health, and they created the Café y Comunidad Charlas program in Chicago's city-run migrant shelters. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. 
This episode of the podcast was produced by Landon Jones, and it was edited by Dan Tucker and Brenda Ruiz. For more conversations like this one, check out our full catalog of interviews by visiting wbez.org slash greaseit. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.